What is up? It's the King James Gossip, fan-sided Cleveland Cavaliers podcast. I'm Doug Patrick, and joining me on the other line, I'm very happy to announce, is Sports Illustrated's very own Ben Golliver. Thank you so much for coming on, Ben. Doug, it's my pleasure, man. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing really good. Uh, I'm super pumped to have you on. Uh, like, just I'm a big personal fan of yours, so it's going to be really great to talk to you. Well, I'm a, a big fan of Ohio in general, even though they're <laughs> sort of the rivals of my uh, my favorite college football team, Michigan Wolverines. And unfortunately, we're kind of on the losing end of this uh, rivalry right now. But uh, spent a lot uh, of how many losses in a row? Uh, hey, look, I'm not even sure I can count that high. I know I'm supposed to be an analytics guy. That's that's some fuzzy math. But uh, I spent a, quite a bit of time in Cleveland these last four years. Uh, you know, during the finals and. I love the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. Not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly or not, but uh, yeah, you're good. I uh, spent some time out in Independence, very lovely little suburb there too. So um, you know, it's it's great to uh, to come on and chat. Awesome. Yeah. Well, let's just dive right into it. So one thing I wanted to talk to you about is I know you recently wrote a column about uh, best bets to uh, bet on as far as like over under teams. I was kind of surprised that the Cavs didn't make that. So. You don't see them winning over 30 and a half games? Um, well, I, I think the the big question to me is with Kevin Love. I mean, clearly when he was the number one guy in Minnesota and everyone's just co- sort of assuming that the Minnesota Kevin Love is going to come back. I think there's a couple of things that have me a little bit nervous with that. Sure. Uh, number one would be the game has changed an awful lot. So, you know, the, the value of those 2010s or those 3020s and the crazy numbers that he was putting up. Um, back in those days, you know, it's not apples to apples in today's NBA. My other concern is when you look at, you know, teams that ha- are sort of built around big men and how good do those big guys actually have to be to really sustain, uh, you know, meaningful success. I mean, there's not very many teams that have oriented their rosters around, uh, you know, a front co- court score. Uh, and really been able to find success. It's just a tough ask. The game is played differently these days. And so uh, when you're looking at him as sort of your clear-cut best player, that makes me a little bit nervous. Obviously, his health concerns are you know cause uh, for nerves as well. I mean, to me, he's a you know kind of a you know a 25 to 35 type player in terms of rankings at this stage of his career, but you don't have any margin for him to miss any time with that roster. Otherwise, things are going to get you know you know pretty ugly. Uh, in general, I'm I'm skeptical of rookie point guards. Uh, you know that's a little bit of an old school traditionalist like grandpa take. I realize, but uh, <laughs> no, for we, sure, we've seen yeah. some very successful rookie guards these last couple of years to buck that trend. But in general, we've also seen a lot of guys like, for example, De'Aaron Fox. Uh, you know, in, in Sacramento where. I mean, he was atrocious as a rookie, and he came in as a very, you know, excitable type guy when he, when he was coming in the pre-draft process. And he just and he's pretty similar to Sexton too, just as far as like that whole, you know, just like the draft express sort of bio on him is, you know, he can really defend, he can really slash, but he's a jump shot away kind of thing. Yeah, and and that's tough because they were really struggling to do anything in Sacramento. And I also think, you know, we always talk about the LeBron effect on his teammates and how he can make guys better. I think there was a reverse LeBron effect too. It's like when you remove LeBron from the equation and you say, hey, Tristan, hey, JR, hey, Kyle, like what are you still able to do? I think those types of guys are going to show their ages and show their flaws a lot more than we've seen uh, in previous years. So to me, I don't think it's unreasonable to envision them going over on that number that you mentioned. 
but I can also see a pretty strong case for the under um, just because it it's sort of like a, a Jenga tower now, right? Like LeBron was the base and he let you, you know, get through the Isaiah atomic experience. He let you get through the uh, Kyrie Irving trade demand. He helps you get through, um, you know, loves injuries and Tristan's injuries and, you know, JR's, uh, you know, streaky moments and injuries. And you just don't have that solid base anymore. And, you know, frankly, like in a worst case scenario, it could get really, really ugly in Cleveland next year. Uh, And so from that standpoint, like if I was giving people a betting advice, first of all, I'd say don't gamble, put your money in, you know, a nice savings bond. (laughs) But second of all, I would say just stay away on the Cleveland because I I could see that one going either direction. That's fair. Well, I guess this sort of like segues into a good thing to talk about is what do you think about like the Kevin Love extension? Because I know you're talking about he's kind of a rickety star to build around, especially front court talent. So do you kind of see the extension as the Cavs just sort of submitting for, you know, like middle of the pack, like purgatory for the next couple of years that he's on there and just sort of being complacent, pushing for that six to 10 seat? Or do you think he's actually a move that attracts other stars? I mean, I see that a lot where it's like, if you're a small market team, you want to have at least that one star in the door already so you can attract others. Do, do you think there's any actual credence to that does that make does is kevin love a star that would actually attract other stars and is he just a push for the middle i i don't want to be too blunt here but the answer to your first question is no i don't think there's a bunch of like top 10 players who are lining up to play with kevin love i don't see it i think um though the general assumption that like oh they're doing it because dan gilbert's obsessed with trying to chase the middle and he just has to have an eighth seed and That'll be a winning season to him, even if they're not very good and they're, they're not actually relevant. I think that's a little bit of a lazy take uh, and just sort of a, a shortcut uh, mentally. I think what really happened with the Kevin Love deal is that it's sort of become this, uh, you know, a fairly modern move by that front office, where if you look at like the Blake Griffin extension or the John Wall extension or, or some of these other guys where, sure, they're not top 10 players, but they're very good and you would rather have them than not have them. And you would also rather be able to trade them on your own timeline rather than feeling forced to trade them with sort of a looming uh, end of contract, uh, you know, right around the corner. And so we're doing the extension with Love is even though it's, you know, pretty expensive and you can definitely make a case that he's not worth all of that money. What it allows them to do is to potentially use him as a trade ship whenever they feel like it. Right. So yeah. that could be at the deadline. That could be next summer. That could be two summers from now. That could be at a lot of different places. And I think he should hold up fairly well over the first couple of years of this deal in terms of providing value, where he should still be able to get you something in, in a trade return. And if the if their choices were basically let it play out and then eventually tank after you know Love decides to leave, uh, that would be choice one. Choice two would be to trade him for whatever you could get right now, tank immediately, Uh, and see what can happen going forward. Or option three is extend love um, and, you know, have, you know, more flexibility in terms of all your decision-making as you go forward. You know, if Sexton turns out to be this amazing point guard and he's ready to rock, number one, that could make you uh, a winner more in the short term, but it could also make you more likely to 
try to trade love for players that complement Sexton on his own timeline, right? So yeah, I think that gives you really good flexibility uh, from Cleveland's standpoint. And I thought, to, to me, it's not like it was a no-brainer extension. It, it was a little bit surprising when it happened. But I think there was an awful lot of really solid logic behind doing it. And I don't think it's just about, hey, we're trying to, you know, cling to the the hopes of winning, you know, at, at all costs. I mean, I think there's some element of that because Gilbert's obviously, uh, you know, a very proud guy and doesn't want to just be viewed as like LeBron James's vehicle. You know, uh, he, he wants to kind of have his own identity. Yeah. But I do. I, I mean, I've seen people like say, you know, uh, oh, he's just doing this to stick it to LeBron. I think like Windhorse has said that before. I, I don't necessarily see that. I mean, I definitely think there's a there's an ego battle that's ongoing. You know, you could even call it a war because it's had multiple chapters at this point between Gilbert and, and LeBron. But I don't think that you give Kevin Love all of that money primarily because of that. I think there's, you know, they're trying to set up quality backup options or number two plans or number three plans in the future. And getting him in place definitely helps you do that. If you didn't have Kevin Love, I mean, Cleveland would probably be the worst team in the league next season. And I think having him and the ability to trade him is better than that. Yeah, I I guess like when it first happened, I was kind of shaking my head just because I almost kind of wanted to see the Cavs tank and just try to build through the lottery. I Obviously, that's sort of, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thinking. But I guess I just it it just hurts to see because you know they are they have their uh, trade pick to the Hawks locked up if it's not uh, top ten the Hawks get it so it just seems like they're kind of throwing away that pick. Well, I don't, don't don't rush to that though. They can still tank. I mean, look, <laughs> that's true. I mean, we saw it with the Knicks last year. Great example. You know, Porzingis goes down midseason. They're not expecting it. All you have to do is trade for Emmanuel Mudiay, <laughs> and you can be terrible. You can win zero games. That's not hard to do, right? Yeah. So. I think the second half tank, you know, the like, give it a good college try in the first couple of months of the season. If it doesn't work out, hey, try to trade love in February and then blow the whole thing up and just don't lo- don't win a game for the last three months of the season. That can still make sure you keep your pick. Uh, and that can also, keep, you know, put you in position in the lottery to have a really good slot, too. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I guess. Yeah, because it's just hard with the philosophy for me to look at it in terms of because uh, right now it just looks to me like they're pushing for the middle. And it, it just seems, I, I guess I have this sort of uh, utilitarian view where it's like, if you're not pushing to win a championship, then why push for the middle when you could, you know, it, it's definitely Philadelphia has made that such a like pretty thing to look at and just be like, Oh, see, it works every time. But then there's a million other examples that you can look to and say, actually it's kind of an awful sort of prolonged effect that you can go into. So, yeah, I, I think they just, they've just kicked that decision down the curb a little bit. I mean, I, that's how I view it. And they've kept Kevin Love happy in the process, and they can see what he's capable of doing. And if it's not enough, then but he still looks good, then you can trade him and uh, maybe get a nice package back, sort of like the Clippers did with Blake Griffin. I just think that they really have not committed themselves to one path or the other. And I think it's a little bit of a mistake to say, oh, now for sure they're going to be stuck in the middle because, number one, we don't know that they're going to be good enough to be in the middle with this group. And then uh, number two, they could still trade out of it if they don't want to be in the middle. If they're just sort of like, eh, we're on the bubble, we're ninth or 10th, we're probably not going to make eighth. What's the point of this season? I mean, you can still you can still make that trade tank, uh, you know, the tank trade easily in February. So sure. I wouldn't be wringing my hands too much 
Um, at the same time, like I probably wouldn't have shown up to with like a hard hat to like celebrate the Kevin Love extension, uh, like those construction <laughs> yeah. workers did. I, I didn't know if the the deal was so good they needed to have a party for it. Yeah. So I guess another thing I wanted to ask you about: Do you think Rodney Hood will be any good this year on the Cavs? I mean, he's still not officially signed, which is uh, irritating, um, and I I don't think they're going to keep him for long term. But I mean, do you see Hood being any better with? Obviously, he's going to have much higher usage rate this year. LeBron's not going to be on the team. If he does sign, he's going to be on the team for the whole year. I, I guess sometimes I like to think about Hood as being somewhat similar to Oladipo in the fact that, you know, when Oladipo got more of a chance to do his sort of freelance offense, he's become a lot more just, you know, better. Uh, so I wonder, do you have any takes about Rodney Hood on a on a new Cavs team where he would be more of a primary scorer as opposed to a guy who's trying to fit into a system and get, you know, mid-range buckets here and there. Yeah, I mean, when I look at Hood in terms of like if if all the NBA players were stocks, I think like him and Isaiah Thomas probably took the hardest hits on their stock value price last year. And so that will usually tell you like, hey, like now might be a pretty good time to buy in. Like, you know, it's yeah. not going to cost you very much. You make the value play. And it won't be that difficult for him to surpass the low expectations. I think the frightening thing about his year last year was that he was a big time minus on both offense and defense. When you look at like real plus minus and the impact stats, right? And when he was actually good during his Utah tenure, that was not the case. And so that makes you kind of wonder, like, obviously he didn't fundamentally change as a player. He wasn't dealing with some sort of like a major health crisis, like a broken leg or an Achilles or something like that, right? So you would think if it's yeah. something mental, if it's something uh, in terms of his fit with LeBron, if it's something else that maybe will be different with a fresh start, uh, you know, coming back with Cleveland this season, that does give me a little bit uh, of hope for him to be able to, you know, recoup some of his value. Uh, in terms of playing like Oladipo or like being in a similar situation, I think that is asking an awful lot. I mean, Oladipo was a top 20 player last year in the NBA. Uh, he, pro- he probably had like a top yeah. 10 well, season, yeah, yeah. right? And I think what made Oladipo so special was the attack mentality going downhill all the way to the basket and then also a really improved off-the-dribble three-pointer, which is just like the most important weapon you can have. And right now with Hood, the problem is he doesn't really have either one of those two things in his wheelhouse. And I'm not sure he's necessarily going to be able to add it in short order. So I would say, um, you know, keep your expectations kind of, you know, in in medium strength for Hood. Um, But if I was Cleveland, I would absolutely be trying to bring him back on a reasonable number and, you know, giving him quite a bit of leash on offense and say, hey, man, like show us that you're the guy who thought he was going to be able to maybe get a max, you know, like not a max, but kind of close to a max extension as the number one option behind Gordon Hayward. I mean, for a while in Utah, that was sort of the plan before, you know, Mitchell blew up. It was, hey, Hood, you're our guy. Like, you know, make yeah. make the play with the ball in your hands. Show us a little bit of pick and roll ability. Uh, and he has some of that that he can do. Uh, and given the other personnel in Cleveland's backcourt at this point, he's a better option than a lot of those guys in terms of playmaking and, and kind of steadiness with the ball. And certainly I would not, you know, one of the, the phrases I use a lot is, you know, don't judge a guy on their sort of best day or their worst day. I think essentially the last two months of last season was combined Hood's worst day. And so I would say don't judge him as a person or as a player sure. based only on that two-month stretch. You know, Realize that he did have a pretty nice career in this league going for a couple of years, and it's still possible for him to get back to that point. 
Hood made me so unexcited about him when they first got the trade for him. I, I was really pumped. I thought he would be a huge big piece in a championship run and maybe even take some of the load off LeBron. And then as the season went on, that was clearly not the case. And uh, I, I guess I don't want to be totally down on him and I want to be as optimistic as possible coming into this season. And I just thought maybe uh, more of the reins of the offense would help him out. And I, I don't, yeah, I guess you're right about the sort of off the dribble three not being in his arsenal. He's really not the best three-point shooter. He really does like to slash and sort of live in the mid-range. And- yeah, he, need, he needs the ball. He needs touches. I mean, I think in his mind, still, he's like a number one or a number two type option. I mean, that's sort of when he was most comfortable. Yeah. Like, the best stretches he had in Utah was when, like, their entire roster was in the hospital. <laughs> you know, like, there was times where, like, they just... It was like a mash unit out there, and it was just like, okay, Roddy, like you're the last guy we've got healthy, so go ahead, go out there and do whatever you want to do with the basketball. And he was able to have a, quite a bit of success in that role. Uh, it was either his second or third season in the league. And if you're Cleveland, again, like what would you rather do? Like let him be the playmaker, or like try to ask Jr. or or Sexton or one of these other guys to like go out there and do it. I mean, those it's tough asking those guys uh, for different reasons. And I think hood's got more experience as a, you know, a ball handling playmaker than pretty much everybody on their roster. Yeah. I, I definitely don't want to see JRBA <laughs> be the ball handler very much at all. But um, I, I guess the, another thing I wanted to ask you is this is something I just feel like I have no read on and may, maybe you won't either, but is coach Tyron Lue a good coach? Like, I just don't know. I, I All I ever hear about is the bad things about him. You know, obviously there was that time in the uh, Boston series where he doesn't put Kyle Korver in because Semi Ojale doesn't play in the second quarter. And that, you know, that kind of blew up. And that just seemed kind of nuts to me that he would do that. And then obviously having LeBron there, there's even like memes where LeBron is hugging Tyron Lue and it says, look how cute the coach is hugging Tyron Lue. So I don't know, I guess... I'm just curious, do you have any read on Coach Lou as a coach? And can you see him at all as like a developmental coach? The the one thing that gives me some sort of, I guess, hope about that is when uh, Jetty Osmond in his rookie year last year had a good game in February as they waited for the new trade people to come over. He left him in and let him play for like 12 or so games in the starting lineup. So it seems like there is a part of Lou that even though he does like to play his veteran guys in the playoffs, he isn't totally set on only playing his veteran trusted players. He will let other guys get in the rotation. So I just want to know, what do you think about Coach Lou? Well, I think his biggest strength is LeBron trusted him. And that is not uh, to be taken lightly whatsoever. I mean, I, I'm sure I don't need to tell you about the David Blatt experience, but uh, no. <laughs> when, when you contrast those two guys and how LeBron treated them, that is the most valuable seal of approval that you can get in the NBA. LeBron is the smartest player in the NBA currently, and I would say he's probably the smartest player uh, of my lifetime that I've been actually, you know, been sort of covering the league. I mean, it's been about ten years now, but. There's not another guy who I would put in terms of basketball intelligence above LeBron, uh, above LeBron. I'd put him over Chris Paul, anybody else you would want. LeBron will not suffer fools, right? So the fact that yeah. Teron Lou not only had a lot of success, uh, but also had a very natural two-way relationship with LeBron, that counts for a lot in my book. Now, I also liked his response to sort of handling um, LeBron's departure, I think, uh, that is a horrible spot for anyone to be in. You know, you you want to like, I mean, obviously it's a huge professional defeat, but you want to remain classy. You want to remain dignified. You don't want to blame anyone, throw anyone under the bus or anything like that. And I thought 
he struck the right message throughout that uh, time period, basically saying, I'm looking forward to, you know, developing some of the younger players and seeing what they're capable of doing and, you know, wish all the best for LeBron. And they hugged it out at Summer League, which is always, you know, kind of good optics and everybody kind of moves forward. You know, Ty Lue has always had backing from a guy like Doc Rivers, who I think, uh, you know, one of the more polarizing, you know, well-known coaches in the NBA, but also a guy who's had a lot of success. So to me, like Lou's pedigree is is good. His personality is good. His big game coaching experience is good. He's shown a certain level of flexibility stylistically. I mean, remember how they played during the 2014 or 2015 finals. Uh, sorry, the 2015 finals compared to the 2018 finals was night and day. You know, I mean, how much did they change their offense to, to uh, you know, basically like four shooters plus LeBron pulling the big time, the big centers off the court, trying to find ways to be a little bit more switchable defensively. I mean, they really did an awful lot of um, adjustments, you know, from that early period to the later period. And again, a lot of coaches wouldn't be able to kind of have the foresight or the mental flexibility to oversee those kinds of transitions. Right. And so, um, I think some of that yeah. was LeBron driven, but I think some of that you really do have to give credit to their coaching staff. So to me, I think Lou is in a place where he can, you know, he's kind of playing with house money a little bit, right? Like if Cleveland's terrible, I don't think anyone's going to blame him for that, at least nationally. They're just going to say, look, you know, it's the first LeBron year uh, or post LeBron year and the roster is not that great. So don't worry about it. It's not really a coaching issue. But if they do exceed that over-under win projection like you mentioned, or if they do make the playoffs, which I'm not expecting, but you know, could happen, uh, I think Lou is in line to get a lot of credit for being able to rally the troops, right? So to me, to me it's exactly. he's kind of – it's not like he's sitting pretty. You would obviously rather have LeBron, but I think there are worse positions to be in than, than the coaching situation that Ty Lue's in right now. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I get what you're saying about it kind of being a win-win situation for Lou. I mean, it's hard to criticize him, especially after all this turnover and just not having the very best player in the game right now. So, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I, I guess, I, and it's hard to know until it happens. I, I just would be so interested to know how Cleveland actually goes about developing players. You know, there, there's no real identity there. You know, you can look at the Spurs and say they always develop their players well. You always kind of feel like any sort of development developing player is in good hands over there. And that's something that, you know, have I just have no read on uh with the Cavs is how well, good do they make Yeah, players. for sure. Yeah. It's it's a great point and remember when teams have to shift their focus so radically from win now, win now, play the vets, everything we can do to keep LeBron happy to a completely different mode that rarely goes smoothly, right? That's not usually a one-year process. That's usually a two-season or a three-season adjustment to where like, you get to a point where things are really stable and you're feeling like you're making positive strides with the young guys. So to me, I would say the pressure should just be off locally. The pressure should be off nationally. You know, Holding Ty Lue's feet to the fire, like, are you actually a good developmental <laughs> coach? I, I think it's it's asking a little bit too much here uh, in this, given the circumstances, you know what I mean? For sure. I also wanted to ask you, is there any Cav on the roster besides Colin Sexton that you're like just excited about this season? I like for me, I am really excited about Larry Nance Jr. I just feel like he really could develop into, you know, for whatever reason to me, he kind of reminds me of a, uh, could turn into a Blake Griffin light sort of player. Not saying he will turn into Blake Griffin by any means, but just the fact that he is super athletic. 
ultra bouncy. He wants to add uh, more like ball handling to his repertoire. He says he wants to facilitate more. It seemed like they were trusting him a little bit more in the finals to hit that mid-range shot. I mean, they it seemed like they were running some pick and pops for him. Granted, he wasn't hitting them then, but there's been talk about him having a shot that he never has gotten to display yet. So for me, I'm into Larry Nance Jr. I, I don't know. Is there anyone on the roster that you'd be excited about? I mean, the, the Jordan Clarkson comeback year, uh, Tristan Thompson comeback year post, uh, or no, I think he's still with the Kardashian. But yeah, I don't know. Is, is there any player that you're you're interested in seeing? Um, I mean, I think Lance is an intriguing guy. I would He's a great candidate for like development, right? Like I, to me, yeah. his offensive game, you've kind of touched on the areas where like he could show some more improvement or, or build things out a little bit. But I think also defensively in terms of his awareness and being able to be a guy you can really trust as like a five in a defensive alignment. I mean, to me, there was just times where I felt like he looked lost, that the game was happening too fast, especially in the playoffs. And for a guy who's sort of that athletic and, uh, you know, that impressive, like when he gets off the court, like, you know, especially offensively when he's like dunking over people and throwing on these crazy posters. And I mean, he can even make contorting layups, you know, his body control yeah. is really impressive. Right. So let's see some of that on the defensive end too. Right. And, you know, it actually reminds me a little bit of his former teammate, uh, Julius Randall in LA where like yeah. 85% of the time that Randall was like thinking about basketball, you could tell he was just thinking about offense. And then the defense was just like, you know, always a secondary or, or tertiary, thought in his mind and you know finally last season Luke Walton was like you're not going to play if you don't play defense and if you don't play defense hard I'm going to pull you out of games and that was a situation where like a developmental coach and Luke Walton like actually got through to a player and helped him become a better defensive player now Randall's not like a defensive player of the year but he's he's become more capable and he could be useful in a switchable lineup you know much much easier to use than a guy like Brooke Lopez was for LA so when you look at uh you know, Nance in terms of like, you know, his long-term value, he could be a really helpful player if he winds up being able to be kind of that small ball center who can uh, switch through defensive assignments and be comfortable on the perimeter while also rebounding. Now that's going to take some work. And so I think that's one guy where you'd say, okay, Ty Lue, that's how you're going to earn your money, right? Like you're going to turn Larry yeah. Nance Jr. into a guy you trust to play in like, you know, the crunch time of, of fourth quarter games and who can get by well enough defensively to do that. I mean, you mentioned the other guy too earlier is Osmond. I mean, he's just fun to watch, right? Like, I think yeah. he's got he's got a cult following just in terms of his activity level. He's just always up to stuff. So I do like guys like that. And this could be an interesting opportunity for him to uh, to get more attention. I, I don't know exactly what his ceiling is as a player, but I was definitely in that camp that like last year was always kind of hoping he would play a little bit more. Um, and certainly he's going to yeah. get as many minutes, I think, as he can handle this year, right? I think so too. I mean, everyone around me at least is so excited about Jetty. Like that everybody thinks he's going to make this huge leap this year. And I, I really hope he does. There's a little part of me though, that is worried that the expectations are a little too high on him for what is, would actually be, you know, a quote unquote breakout season for him. I think if he, if he shows a lot of promise on the defensive side, which Lou and LeBron have talked about thinking that he just shows a ton of effort there. And I mean, he's got a three point stroke. I really think so. Um, he, he shot really well from there. Granted his free throw percentage was not great. And usually those things go hand in hand. So there's gotta be something that's going to break there, you know, but I, I think Jetty could be really good this year. And I guess one thing I kind of wanted to ask you too about is what sort of value do you think there is in like a player coach like 
Kyle Korver. So obviously Kyle Korver is about to be 38. He does not fit into this Cavaliers timeline in really any sense of the word. But do you think there's value in just keeping somebody like that on the roster to to teach guys how to shoot? I mean, he's already shown that he is willing to do that. He helped LeBron and Tristan Thompson in 2017 with free throws. Obviously, LeBron looks like a much more confident free throw shooter ever since having Kyle Korver on the roster. Um, but I just always worry that, you know, player coach sort of effects can be like super overstated. I think people get really excited about having, quote unquote, veteran leadership in the locker room. I, I want to get your read on that. I though. mean, it could be helpful if you're trying to train a guy to sort of be the next Corver. And so, hey, I can just show you all the tricks and we can work out for like two hours a day and you just do everything that I do and you can kind of become a, a similar type player. I think that can be helpful. I definitely agree with what you just said, that it's often overstated. I think a lot of these guys, especially if they're big time players, they have their own trainer, they have their own guys that they're working with, their skills coach and everything like that. They have their own vision for kind of who they want to be. And, you know, maybe back in the day when like, you know, guys are like going out there and partying super late every single night and basketball isn't like their sole obsession. And, uh, you know, it it helps to kind of have, you know, the big brother, you know, mentor type uh, experience. But my experience, especially in these last couple of years, has been that, you know, the expectation level is so high from these players. And these guys have become so smart in terms of trying to become not only players, but like businesses in terms of, you know, what they're doing from a marketing standpoint, how they're keeping control of their health, uh, their diet, their nutrition, their sleep, like all this stuff. I mean, a 20 year old who comes into the NBA now is not the same as a 20 year old who came into the NBA 15 years ago. And so I think from that standpoint, like, you know, it's good to have good locker room guys around, but it's not like absolutely crucial. And I think, you know, ultimately Corver's, you know, biggest value for Cleveland at some point here, you know, could be in a trade, right? I mean, I think if, if you find a team that winds up, you know, has playoff aspirations, uh, but, you know, maybe finds himself with an injury and, you know, they think, okay, well, we can plug him in. He's been in the playoffs before and, He's still a reliable shooter and his contract isn't terrible. It's not great, but, you know, it's not super long at least. You know, then maybe if I was Cleveland, I would be kind of hoping to that disaster strikes elsewhere so that you could, you know, pawn off Corver and get some sort of a draft asset in return. Yeah, I mean, definitely out of the three or four biggest misfits on the team, he seems like the one that has the most trade value. I I don't think a ton of contenders are going to necessarily jump at the opportunity of adding J.R. Smith to their team. I also, I, I just don't exactly know what sort of value George Hill would have for a playoff team. And I, I just can't imagine any sort of uh, rebuilding team would jump at the opportunity of adding them either. So I think you've got to probably trade these guys to a contender and how much value do those guys really have? I mean, like you said, they're going to definitely show their wear and tear without LeBron. So I think it could be even harder to trade them as the season gets going, even if you are trying to make a, a mid-season tank move. So yeah, I guess... The one thing I it's okay if you don't have any anything to say about this, but I, I've just been reading more and more articles that are kind of talking about how uh in retrospect the Kyrie trade from Cleveland is actually looking really good for the Cavs, or that they somehow quote like won the trade. Uh and most of the most of the uh rhetoric behind that is that Kyrie missed the playoffs uh and that the Cavs drafted eighth overall. So I don't know. Do you just have any feelings in retrospect about the Kyrie trade? It's been something that I just always thought was obvious. Cavs lost the trade. Uh, It's too bad they didn't, in my opinion, too bad they didn't just, you know, 
hold on to Kyrie for dear life. Even if he did, was requesting the trade, he was still on contract. Um, but now I'm just seeing a lot of people think that maybe it wasn't so bad. And do, do you have any sort of take on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to be kind of a, a pragmatist about it. If a superstar doesn't want to be in your situation, it's your your team's best interest to trade him. I mean, you can try to talk him into it, like you know the Spurs did with uh, Kawhi Leonard. You can have multiple sit downs. You can sort of try to get at what's really eating him and and kind of try to you know change his mind. But sort of ultimately, you're probably going to have to face the music, and it's better to do that you know earlier than later, especially if the guy's really set in. It just otherwise it hangs over your organization. It just makes it so hard to work on a, a daily basis and. For a team that had, you know, championship aspirations, um, I definitely could see why they did the trade. It's funny. I actually predicted the exact trade package that they came up with uh, about five or six weeks before the trade happened. We did a roundtable on SI.com and um, I basically said, look, I think it's weird that they would trade, you know, to a team that's sort of a fellow conference contender. But when you look at the kind of point guards who could replace Kyrie in that role, there none of them are available. And basically Isaiah is like the only one who could be kind of available. And so from that standpoint, sure. I thought that the logic that Kobe showed was very strong. I completely understand that it did not yeah. work out. It basically went to the worst possible scenario when you look at Isaiah and you look at Jay Crowder and then having to kind of repackage Crowder and you know, the, the end return was not very great. But I am definitely. Oh, but I, I was one of the people who was like, I thought that trade was awesome. I thought that was such a smart idea. Like, it could still be that MVP candidate. Jay Crowder could be a potential KD stopper. You know, all of that stuff. But I'm sorry, go on. No, so I think that that's my big point. Is like, look, if you can understand why they did it, it made sense at the time, and they took some risks that ultimately backfired. I'm not sure that we should be like in this whole you know, category of like, let's just like mock all men, say you did a terrible job and second guess him and, and laugh and clown the Cavaliers. And I think that's uh, that's going too far. And it's, it's actually being unfair. I mean, really put yourself in Kobe's situation. You know, his hands were really tied. I thought he did actually pretty well with that trade package. And it just, you know, went south and he, he pulled the plug too. I mean, some GMs would say, oh, Let's talk ourselves into Isaiah becoming back to a star level player. And that wasn't going to happen last year, right? When we saw it in LA. So I think ultimately uh, he made the right decision to trade Kyrie. And then he also made the right decision to trade Isaiah. And uh, unfortunately, both of those moves were aimed at keeping LeBron happy. It was always going to be a risk that LeBron left. And I don't think that LeBron left for either one of those decisions. I don't think that was sort of the precipitating reason why he left. And so from that standpoint, I think you've just got to move forward as an organization. You know, of course, you'd rather have Kyrie happy if you could. Uh, but to me, that wasn't an option that they were able to uh, to have in their deck. Definitely. And this will be my last question because we're already at around 30 minutes. But uh, yeah, I just want to know, how well do you think Colby Altman's doing as a GM? I mean, I don't know how plugged in you are as far as the Cavs offseason moves this year. Um, they added guys like David Nwaba, Sam Decker. Obviously, they picked uh, Colin Sexton. They brought back Channing Fry, championship Channing Fry, um, and they even like brought in Billy Preston. They also just like recently today, um, Alex Kennedy had a tweet about them working out guys like Tyler Eulis and Jakar Sampson, Alan Williams. Do you think Kobe Altman's doing a decent job, or like I don't know what? What sort of critiques would you have for him? All that kind of stuff. Well, I think, you know, he took over the job under incredibly trying circumstances. I mean, to have a, a popular 
guy who, you know, you had worked with and for just basically like, you know, stripped of his job without a ton of warning and kind of an awkward situation right when LeBron is entering the final year of his contract and right when, you know, they're in the middle of potentially trying to trade Kyrie because, you know, before Kyrie really requested the trade, that kind of stuff was already happening kind of behind closed doors in terms of, you know, is he going to be here long-term? How can the, the Cavaliers, uh, you know, improve? And then of course there was, they were trying to chase Paul George right at that same time. And they yeah. had a lot going on. Right. So sure. I think he nailed the press conference when he got hired. He really sent the right tone, his job, you know, as you know, bad as it sounds like his job was to, basically uh, do everything he possibly could to appease LeBron and keep LeBron happy. That was his whole job description. I don't think he could have done a better job than he did at that last year. And you can make the counter argument that says, well, they should have just realized LeBron was going to leave and run the other direction. Look, that makes sense in sort of fantasy land. But in reality, when LeBron is as popular as he is uh, in Ohio and as good as he is on the court, you're never going to trade LeBron or, you know, like, uh, try to, you know, muster assets for the future or like, you know, tear down the roster around him. You're just not going to do that. You're going to do what you can to keep him happy. So I think he's a little bit in the Ty Lue situation where uh, his job description has changed drastically. Like it's changed 180 degrees. Um, the, the moves yeah. that you mentioned, there's a clear thread that goes through all of them, which is basically find hidden gems, you know, if you're lucky and, and go after young, cheap, disposable type players and hope that a few of them stick. Uh, and then you give you know Sexton as much leash as he can handle next season, and then hope that he turns into a big time player. You know, I think that you know Sexton as a prospect has a fairly high ceiling. He's definitely an intriguing player from that class, and so I like that pick for them. Um, I just don't really see a, you know a major miss yet. Like I explained earlier, I think the logic behind the Love deal uh, is pretty sound. So to me, you know, Kobe seems like a good guy. He seems like he's got uh, a great head on his shoulders, that he's making logical moves with sort of a clear, uh, you know, overarching plan uh, during the post-LeBron era. And, you know, we'll see what happens. But he's not going to win if he doesn't get better talent. I mean, I think everybody can agree on that. And I think it's also going to be, you know, a multi-year process to really reload and, and restock the coffers. Uh, in terms of you know their talent base, because so many of these guys right now are placeholders, right? Like if you look forward to the 2020 or 21 Cavs, Jr. is not going to be there. Tristan's not going to be there. Corver is not going to be there. Channing Fry, who I know back from the Portland days, you know, when I was covering the Blazers, you know, he's not going to be there. I mean, basically, you know, Hill's not going to be there. I mean, this roster is going to be changing an awful lot in the next two to three years. And I think for executives and you know, guys that I've talked to in the league, they actually really get excited about this time of the the roster building because that's when they can put their own stamp on the group. That's when they can find players who represent the types of values that they're looking for. That's when they can kind of build from the ground up. And I'm really interested to see what uh, Kobe can do in that situation because, like I mentioned, you know he he handled a a tough situation very well. And very professionally, mm-hmm. and I think that bodes well for what's coming for uh, for Cleveland. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's all I've got uh, for you, Ben. Um, thank you again so much for coming on the show. I I really really appreciate it. If you want to plug some social media or anything, please feel free to. Oh, yeah, well, you know, check out the Open Floor Podcast. I mean, we're on Apple up Apple Podcasts, yeah. and then you know I'm on Twitter at Ben Golliver G O L L. I V E R. Uh, and then, you know, obviously check us out on SI.com slash MBA. 
we'll be having our top 100 we'll be uh, releasing here, you know, coming up later this month. Yeah. And uh, no spoilers, but, you know, Kevin Love obviously, you know, fares fairly well in this year's, uh, <laughs> this year's group. So, um, you know, you can read our breakdown on him. You know, it's a project that Rob Mahoney and I do every year. And, uh, you know, certainly there'll be a nice little write-up about Kevin Love. And I'm sure, you know, everyone's favorite ex-Cavalier LeBron is probably going to fare pretty well on our list too, right? Exactly. Can't, well, he'll definitely be top three. We'll see where he fits in there, though. Can't, can't <laughs> give it away. You know, you don't. don't I know. Time. I know. I'm trying to try to tease it out. There you go. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again so much. All right, man. Take care. Good luck with everything. Yeah, thank you. And if you'd like to send in questions to be answered on the next podcast, you can send them to kjgpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's kjgpodcast at gmail.com. And I would so appreciate some five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the pod so they're not accidentally looking at Bible podcasts. That's a big problem when your name is King James Gospel or King James Gossip. Uh, So really, we would just love any sort of thing that you guys can do for us. Uh, We really hope you tune in next week. And yeah, we hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you. Bye.